Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's topic is how to keep your cool, or in other words, how do we avoid anger in our lives? It turns out this is not just a modern topic. People have been thinking and writing about anger for millennia, debating whether there's even a legitimate justification for anger, or if it is an emotional state we should always avoid. Perhaps the most eloquent writer to ever take up this topic was Seneca, the Roman philosopher and statesman, who wrote about it in the first century. Joining me today to talk about Seneca's famous essay on anger is James Rom, professor of classics at Bard College and the author of How to Keep Your Cool, an Ancient Guide to Anger Management. Seneca has a lot of great advice for us regarding the harmful effects of anger and how to avoid anger in our lives. And James does an incredible job explaining Seneca and making his writing and ideas accessible. I hope you enjoy my conversation with James as much as I did. My friends, I bring you James Rom. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. James Rom, welcome back to The Good Life. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's great to have you here. And the topic of today's discussion is how to keep your cool, how to not get rattled, how to control yourself when things don't go your way. And my guest today is Professor James Rom, Professor of Classics at Bard and the author of the book, How to Keep Your Cool, An Ancient Guide to Anger Management. This is James' second appearance on The Good Life. He was a guest on episode nine where he talked about Seneca and Seneca is also going to be part of the discussion today. The ancient wisdom referred to in the title of his book refers to an essay from Seneca on anger. And Seneca is a Stoic, of course, and his advice on how to control our anger draws heavily on Stoic philosophy. So I hope we get into that. And the essay itself I found to be very readable, extremely well-written, a little striking and violent at times, but Seneca's prose is just beautiful and he's a master of rhetoric. He uses all of these techniques. All of his persuasive powers are really on display. Even if you're not interested in the topic to learn about how to be a persuasive writer, it's a great essay. But more importantly, the advice in the essay, I think, is extremely practical and, in my opinion, very sound. So I wish I would have read it earlier in my life, actually. In fact, if it was a standard reading in high school, I think it would be great. So let's get into it. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about Seneca and just kind of putting this essay in context. So Seneca, as you said, was a member of the Stoic philosophic school, the school that had originated in Greece but was brought to Rome in the first century BC. Seneca was born right about the turn of the millennium, so about you know the year 1 BC or 1 AD. And so he grew up under the Principate, the Roman Empire, as we call it. He lived through the reigns of Caligula, just barely, because Caligula assassinated many senators and apparently wanted to kill Seneca, but didn't get the chance. And then under Claudius, the successor to Caligula, he was exiled on a political charge for eight years, spent eight years on Corsica in exile from Rome. He was brought back at the end of the 40s AD by Claudius's second wife, Agrippina, 
who was the mother to Nero, and in an effort to get Nero in line for the succession after Claudius's death, she brought Seneca in as his tutor. He was only 13. Seneca was an established thinker, writer, senator, and so a good person to have as a tutor to a young teenager. Seneca stayed with Nero after Nero took the throne or, or took the emperorship. It wasn't a throne, but an unofficial office in 54 AD and stayed with Nero for 11 years as his chief minister, chief confidant, friend of the palace, however you want to define him, until finally Nero became fed up with him and had him killed, had uh, forced him to commit suicide in 65. So he had both a very prominent role, practically running the empire when Nero was young. He didn't have any interest in governing. He turned over the state to Seneca and a couple of other counselors, but also writing treatises, moral essays, all during his adult life. Yeah, Seneca really had a fascinating life, and you wrote a book about his life, in particular his time at the court of Nero, which is a very interesting read and primarily the topic of our last discussion. So listeners can go back and listen to that if you want more detail on Seneca's life. What I find fascinating about it is he, he bounces back and forth between writing philosophy and then the other part of his life is mixing it up in the world, getting involved in politics. He ended up piling up a lot of wealth. He got exiled, as you said, and brought back and became a coach or confidant to Nero. So he's also just a man of the world and a mover and shaker in the Roman Empire. Let's talk about this essay on anger. It's one of his most prominent works. It starts it off as if he's talking to his brother, like writing a letter to his brother. But you mentioned in the introduction that that's probably just a rhetorical technique. So talk a little bit about who he was writing to and why he wrote this. Yes, he writes all of his essays to one addressee, but that's a fiction. It allows him to speak in a very intimate tone, as if he's writing a letter, for instance. But still, he meant the works to be read by a, a large public. So he writes this one to his brother. His brother was also a senator and also had trouble with Caligula and narrowly escaped assassination. So Novatus, his brother, knew a lot about the topic that Seneca addresses. The title on anger is maybe not a very accurate translation. It's the best we have, but the title in Latin is De Ira, and Ira in Latin is a stronger term than just anger. It's a consuming rage, and Seneca links it closely with Caligula. That is the kind of madness that took over Caligula that caused him to commit murders and purges and so on. We might call paranoia or um, sadism, but Seneca calls it ira. So for him, there is a very political context to this topic because Rome had been had suffered terrible abuses as a result of an emperor giving in to his ira, to his anger. And Seneca was now in a position to make sure that didn't happen again. So we don't know the date of the treatise. It probably falls around the time when Seneca took up as Nero's tutor, and quite possibly it was written over several years. So maybe the last book was after Nero's accession. In any case, Seneca clearly foresaw that Nero would be emperor and he would be in a position of power 
And I think part of the goal of the treatise is to address the concerns that Ira might very well take over the state again, that there might be another episode like that of Caligula, as indeed there was. Uh, but Seneca was in a position to try to prevent it. So it was almost a, a plea to shift the morals of society, the society he was living at the time, to make a moral case to avoid this consuming anger and hopefully create a society that, that can avoid that in the future, a better society. Yes. The whole political class, you know, basically the aristocracy, as Seneca felt, was particularly vulnerable to anger. He discusses it as, an as a product of bad child rearing, that rich people born with spoons and silver spoons in their mouths are never told no, they're never denied things, and so they have no patience for any kind of obstruction, and they fly into rages whenever they're slighted in any way. It's a very amusing description, actually, of the behavior of wealthy, spoiled people. So Seneca got something right about the upper class or about the wealthy class. Yeah, and Seneca himself wasn't born at the very highest echelon of, of Roman society. He was more, what would you call him, upper middle class, maybe. He didn't grow up in the same affluence that he's writing about. That's correct. He was not a member of the highest order, the senatorial class. He had to be elevated by an act of the state in order to gain entrance into the Senate. It was not his natural condition. Well, the first part of the essay... Seneca really digs into anger, what it is and why it's so bad. One thing that I took away from that was his definition of anger, because I always thought of anger more of the emotion and what it does to me or to others, but he really got to, to the root cause, which I think helped make his case for how to prevent it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So he defines anger as, or ira, as the desire to punish, just as he has a later essay on mercy, on clemency, which is the desire to remit punishment. So the two, two are sort of two sides of a coin. And that desire arises from the feeling that you've been wronged or injured. You're not being treated with proper respect or proper dignity. And so you, you want to lash out. Yeah. And we see that today in our society, you mentioned in the introduction, getting cut off, road rage. You know, you're on the freeway, someone cuts you off, and all of a sudden these feelings boil up and it, you have this inner rage towards this stranger and you have no idea why the stranger is going so fast. You, have, you don't know what's going on in their world. I just had an incident just last weekend. I came out to my car, which was parked on the street, and the window was smashed and someone had smashed and wanted to grab something in my car. And I could feel the anger boiling up. Luckily, I just read the essay. Actually, I was trying okay. to apply some of Seneca's techniques and they, they definitely helped. But these things happen in modern society. What Seneca is talking about directly relates to these very common human experiences. How do we handle it? So let's talk about some of his techniques because he offers some good advice. Wait, before we talk about the techniques, I want to mention something in the beginning of the essay around this idea of wanting to inflict punishment on someone. And he has, a, I think, a wonderful analogy of jumping off a cliff. And this sort of connects, too, to the idea of the IRA being 
this all-consuming rage. Well, obviously, when I got went out to my car and this window was smashed, I didn't turn into a Caligula. But what Seneca is saying is wherever it starts, you don't want it to grow. And that's where this analogy of the cliff comes from. He says it can be like jumping off a cliff where once you just let go of that ledge, gravity takes over and you don't know where you're going to end up. That's right. Yes. Anger takes on a momentum of its own and you become powerless to extricate yourself. We sometimes use the term spiraling in modern therapy speak that you tend to spiral out of control. For Seneca, there was very much the experience of ira, of anger. He also mentions that in a kind of rhetorical way, well, there's going to be people that say anger is good. And he comes at anger from so many different angles. By the time you finish the first part of the essay, you're pretty well certain that anger is not good. But can you talk a little bit about that, how some of those um, arguments? Yes. He's very extreme in his condemnation of anger. He doesn't admit that anger is useful even in cases where your parent has been murdered or you need to fight, your army needs to fight an enemy army. He says you can enact justice, you can seek justice for a murdered family member, but not out of anger, simply out of a desire to see justice done. As soon as you do it out of anger, it loses its validity. And if you attack an enemy and you're in a battle frenzy, you're li- liable to botch it and be defeated. You have to keep a cool head. Not at all we see in most movies about warriors. You know, we, we like to see them go bananas and run screaming at, straight at the enemy. But for Seneca, that was just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful concept and something to keep in mind. Because we do hear sometimes that, well, dig into your anger or find some anger inside you to motivate you to go do something. Or, you know, sometimes in political discussions, I think Seneca is saying you have to be very, very careful about what you're doing. And his advice is it's not justified. You can Mm -hmm. address these things in other ways that don't involve going down that path because you're sort of slipping off that cliff. And once it gets going, you don't know how far you're going to go. Exactly. And this has become more relevant in recent years in the last administration and what we saw on January 6th and the uses of the web to troll and attack your political opponents. Anger has entered into our political life in a way that it hasn't before. And uh, it's quite worrisome. So I think Seneca really has some things to say about that. Yeah, it's a very important warning, I think, from someone who lived through a society that did see anger spiral out of control. Seneca also connects anger to wars. You mentioned that briefly, and I think that's really important. So he sees it as the root to a lot of evil that causes destruction and just wrecks havoc in innocent people's lives because someone, a head of state, is angered about something, and now an army is going and marching on another army, and we have uh, all of the effects of war, which can be very negative. So I thought that was fascinating, too. Yes. I don't know if any of your listeners will have seen the HBO's Rome, which takes place uh, before the time of Seneca, but deals with a lot of Roman philosophical ideas 
in interesting ways. Really a great series. But the very first scene of the first episode is contrasting two soldiers, Titus Polo and Lucius Varenus. And Polo is the man of Ira. He's able to summon his anger when he charges at the Gauls. They're fighting the Gauls. And Varenus calls him back and says, tells him to stay in formation. That's how you win battles, staying in formation. And running and charging is just a fool's errand. That is a great series for anyone who wants an introduction or just to learn more about Rome. I think it's quite historically accurate. Oh, it's extremely well done. Yes, extremely well done. I show it in my classes. So let's talk about the second half of the essay, or maybe it's the second, third. I can't remember exactly how it gets divided. But at some point, Seneca moves from talking about what anger is and why it's so bad to, okay, what can we do about it? How can we avoid it at all costs? And then if it does happen to slip through, what can we do if we start to feel it developing? And and then I think there's even a third part to that, which is how can we help others that we see start to fall under the spell of anger? Let's get into each of those, starting with how does Seneca tell us to avoid it? It's a wide range of techniques. Uh, Some of them are very practical, matter of fact. Don't bite off more than you can chew if you're taking on a new job. Don't hang around with people who annoy you. Don't get into situations that are going to provoke your anger. That's basic, right? And also very basic is to give a pause, to to give a breathing space between the provocation and your response. So let a little time go by. Count to 10 is the the modern equivalent. So those are basic self-help kind of things. At a more philosophic level, at a stoic theoretical level, he's interested in the, the way in which anger gets started. There's a little bit of a window between the stimulus and the response, in which you have a choice, you have a rational choice about whether to let your soul get sucked in, get diverted from the logos, the reason, the mind. Your mind can short-circuit the response of the emotions and prevent them from getting started. It takes practice. He uses the analogy of a deep-sea diver that goes after sponges, so you have to dive down deep and you have to hold your breath for a good long time, you can build up your lung capacity. You can build up the amount of time that you can hold your breath just by practice. So that's how you have to master your anger. Yeah, having that pause gives you the time to access that reason and that intellect and to ask yourself, how do I judge this situation? How can I, what's my reaction going to be to this situation? I find that very helpful. Going back to the example of the car window being smashed, one of the questions that I asked myself as I felt the anger building up is, was I really harmed by this? You know, mm-hmm. Is is my whole day ruined? Is my life ruined? No. You know, mm-hmm. I have my health. I have my family. Just starting to remind yourself of the bigger picture. And mm-hmm. this incident in my life is going to be nothing. And right. I should treat it like nothing. I should move on. I live in a city. I chose to live in a city. I park my car in the street. I chose to park my car in the street. There's so many reasons why these choices should come with risk and that I should accept that risk. 
and mm-hmm. I should not be surprised when it happens or angered. Well, which is another classic Stoic technique, the primeditatio malorum, the foreseeing of bad things. You have to anticipate, says Seneca, you're going to run into lots and lots of provocations. You're going to meet up with idiots. People are going to bump into you. They're going to let their supermarket cart roll into your car and scratch it. It, Things are just going to happen. Shit happens. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, (laughs) And if you're anticipating that, most of us anticipate that everything's going to go well. We plan our day so that we get from point A to point B in the least possible time, and there's never any traffic and so on and so forth. Then there's a traffic jam and we're furious. So plan for the traffic jam. So all of these techniques that we've talked about so far, even the basic ones, not piling too much stuff into our day, not taking on too much work so we get stressed out because that just leads to anger, getting sleep. He even talks about not allowing yourself to be too thirsty or hungry because that's going to contribute. So just taking care of the basics, all this is really important. It is basic, but it's really important. We do let it slip out of control sometimes, and that's when anger is more prevalent to show up. But then he gets to another level of moral argument, or he makes a moral case, which I found really persuasive and and something that, that I can resonate with, which is he encourages us to ask ourselves, well, are we are we really that different than the people that are harming us? We all have our faults. We all are part of this human body that is clearly flawed and we're dealing with each other. So let's cut each other a little slack. Yes. And those are some of the most beautiful passages of this treatise. And Seneca has the same idea in other treatises that we're all deeply flawed. We're just wicked people living among wicked people is how he puts it. So why get angry? That person did something to you that you've probably done to someone else at some other point or you wanted to, or you could have, or you will in the future. What's happened to you is no worse than what you've done. So treat others as you would want to be treated. It's the golden rule. It's, you know, do unto others. It's a deeply humanistic message, a compassionate message that I think is, as you say, it's really the core of his thoughts on anger. Yeah, and I found it to be very modern, It sounded very modern to my ear, and I didn't realize so many modern ideas were coming out of Rome and Greece in Mm -hmm. ancient times and how we sort of have to discover these things again. Mm -hmm. He almost lays out the foundations for the nonviolent movement for Gandhi and Martin Luther King. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of a stretch, but if you look at some of the passages, you can see how he says violence begets violence, that the best thing is to just avoid it altogether. And he comes up with all these arguments for why it makes sense for individually Mm -hmm. and then expands that to society. And he's really talking about a nonviolent society, which Mm -hmm. is amazing because he's in the middle of all this violence and he's in the middle of a Roman world, which is just kind of top down and it's the rule of the powerful, not some kind of humanistic um, moral rule. Yes. Yes, he participated in some of the palace's worst crimes, as far as we can tell, uh, also saw that a, a better way was possible. 
Yeah, I don't know anything about the connection with Gandhi or King, but it is interesting that modern cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT as it's sometimes called, came directly out of Stoicism and in particular Senecan thought. So there's a direct link there. And, and what's the principle of cognitive behavioral therapy? What What's the guiding thought there, if you had to describe that? Well, I don't know if I... If I'm qualified, but um, you know, as opposed to Freudian psychoanalysis, where you're trying to understand the roots of the psyche of of your unconscious, CBT focuses more on day to day behavior. That you know, you can you can better your life through just choices you make about how to act, and you know how to interact with the world. Yeah, I've that's, heard it described a, as almost. Uh taking a number of the Stoic principles and sort of applying them to, to therapy or to a discussion with the therapist that helps you work through a lot of the practices that came out of Stoicism. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I'm qualified either. I know I'm not qualified. That is interesting, though, and that is a popular form of therapy. Yes, and your readers, your, your listeners probably know of a book by um, a modern therapist, about Marcus Aurelius called How to Be a Roman Emperor, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Donald Robertson wrote a very powerful book about Marcus Aurelius. Yes, we had Donald Robertson on the show to talk about his book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. It was episode eight, and I'll put a link in to the show notes if anyone's interested. And in that book, Robertson writes extensively about the connection between Stoicism and modern cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. So let's continue on with Seneca's advice. We talked about how to try to avoid anger. What does he say if it starts to build up? What's his advice if we feel it and we want to prevent it? Well, the the best quote from a climactic passage of the third book, where he talks about all the provocations, all the ways that we're going to get angry he builds this list, makes it bigger and bigger, and then he comes to the end of it and says, draw back further and laugh. Draw back further and laugh. So you have to look at things in a cosmic perspective. As you were saying about your car, you know, if you were to, I don't know, in my introduction, I, you know, I take it to a sort of absurd level by saying, what if our galaxy were to be swallowed by a black hole? Uh, your your car window wouldn't matter a whole lot. But the fact is, there are galaxies being swallowed as we speak, and suns are exploding, and asteroids are crashing into planets, and you know, there's things happening at the cosmic scale. That's where our minds should be. That's where we should focus. And if we could do that, we would see that these little irritations are ridiculous, that it's ridiculous to be angered by them. That's great advice. Stand back further and laugh. Yeah. Just remove yourself emotionally from the situation and look at the big picture. He has a Mm -hmm. great story in that section of the essay or book. He contrasts two different kings. One was offended by some subjects that were talking about him or offended him in some way. So he had them murdered. 
And the other king happened to hear two subjects of his talking on the other side of a tent. And the king could have been easily offended by what they said. But he sort of whispered (laughs) through the tent something like, don't talk next to the tent because the king might hear you. And they they knew it was the king saying it. And I thought, and he said, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the king that is vengeful and murders their subjects? Or you want to be the one who can take the high road, so to speak? Yes, he's got wonderful stories of people who did master their anger. My favorite one is of Socrates, who's always Seneca's foremost hero in terms of following the, the mind and not the uh, the emotions. Socrates was out walking out of his house and someone bonked him on the head with a beam. You know, someone who's building a house just clocked him. And he just looked around and said, hmm, one never knows if one should go out wearing a helmet nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And he went on with his day and he wasn't, it didn't take him down some kind of spiral and ruin his day. Yeah. He, he went on being yeah. Socrates. And I found those stories to be inspiring when I think, think about the person I want to be, I'm drawn to the person who can sort of let it go and not be offended when people attack me or say things that I think are offensive. Because if, you, if you're comfortable with who you are and you know you haven't really been wronged by what they said, because you can only be wronged if you let them wrong you, then you can control that anger and, and move on. I think that's quite uh, helpful. Yes. And modeling is a big part of it. It's no accident that Senecan treatises are filled with great historical anecdotes, both negative and positive, because he wants you to have models. He wants you to have Socrates in mind, have Cato, his his other great exemplar, in mind, and model your behavior on theirs. So towards the end of the essay, he brings it back to this subject of death, which we, we talked about the last time we got together in, in your book, How to Die, which is based on another essay by Seneca. So how does he bring this back to thinking about our death? Yes. So death is always on Seneca's mind. It's his foremost theme. As you say, I tried to bring that out in my previous volume of translation, How to Die. In this case, It's part of the pulling back. If we pull back from the moment and we realize we're all mortal and death is waiting around the corner for all of us, then these minute things don't matter. He uses the example of um, a uh, combat between beasts in the arena with a bull and a bear fighting each other and clawing and snorting and breathing fire. What both of them don't realize is whoever wins or whoever loses, they're both going to get executed in the next minute. They're both uh, doomed for the chopping block. So he compares that to human life, that we're all on the chopping block. And so to use up our little time, little space of time with petty grievances would be just a grave mistake. Yeah, and I think that's how he ends the essay, right? He ends it with that very thought that we should keep that in mind when we feel anger arising or to avoid anger, that it's in the big picture, this is not going to impact us. We should keep our focus on what's important in life. Yes. We'd just be squandering this precious resource, 
time for Seneca is a precious resource. That's going to be the topic of another volume that I'm I'm doing for Princeton for next year. How to use your time. We we don't have a title yet, but something about good use of time. Getting the uh, most out of your life. Getting getting the most out of life because we get furious if someone were to steal from our bank account. But people steal our time all the time, and we don't react. And in fact, the loss of time is much more painful, much more serious than much the more, loss of money. Yeah, much more precious. Much more precious. So if we if we really realized that our time was limited, we wouldn't waste it on getting angry. Looking forward to that. That's great. Now, we <laughs> should probably mention this series for listeners that aren't familiar with it. Can you describe the, the series? Yes. So the title of the series is Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers. And each of them starts with how to as its title. Some of them are very practical, like how to drink was one recent one, how to tell a joke. But my favorites are the ones that deal with ethical topics. Uh, there's Seneca, there's Epictetus has been the subject of how to be free, how to be content, which comes out of Horace. So treating these ancient writers as guides to modern life, as guides to the better life, because that's really what they are. But they're often packaged as Penguin classics or Oxford World classics. They tend to package them as historical artifacts. So this is a way to package them as eternal wisdom. Yeah, it's an excellent rebrand. And they come each with, I find, very well-written forward or introduction that introduces the work. Then you've got a translation you did the translation for this for this yes. series? Okay. And then it also reprints the Greek, right? Or the well, Latin the Lat in this case. Yeah, the Latin sorry. in this case, yes. Which I yes. can't read, so I don't know. Uh, maybe it'll be, help me somewhere down the road, but it's nice that it's there. Maybe it, gives, it does give you this air of, well, if I had the time to learn Latin or if I could delve into this intellectual life a little further, maybe I would, but I, it's nice that it's there. What's the thought behind putting it there? That's a good question. I don't know. Some uh, reviewers on uh, the bookseller websites complained about that, that they didn't expect that it would be half in Latin and they felt, you know, shortchanged. I guess it's partly for authenticity that you can check the Latin or the Greek if you have the ability and maybe to get you hooked. If you, if you don't read Latin already, maybe you'll want to learn it. That's a good reason right there. Well, speaking of books coming up, the new book in the series that's coming out for on Seneca and time sounds really fascinating, but you also have another work coming out. What do you have coming up? So my, my primary field as a, a writer is historical narrative. So I have two books of that kind already and dying every day. The life of Seneca, as you, as you mentioned, was one of them in June, I have a book coming out called the sacred band 300 Theban lovers fighting to save Greek freedom. And it's a story of a military corps infantry unit called the Sacred Band that was fielded by Thebes, made up of 150 pairs of male lovers on the um, theory or the principle that you would fight harder for love than for any other motivation. And it proved to be true because they were able to defeat all their foes, including the Spartans and briefly made Thebes a superpower of the Greek world. 
that's the central thread. It's it's really a survey. It covers about four decades of Greek history leading up to Alexander the Great. But basically, it's a story of Thebes and the last attempt to to keep Greece free of foreign domination. Wow, what a fascinating story. I can't wait to read that one. And when you say free of domination, you're talking about free of Alexander the Great coming down from Macedonia and dominating Greece. Okay. Well, first Philip, Philip, his father, was the first to uh, defeat the Greeks and force them into, uh, deprive them of autonomy. And the sacred band was destroyed in the battle that Philip fought against the Greeks. And their mass grave, they were buried in a mass grave on the site of the battle at Chaeronea, and the grave was excavated in uh, the 1880s. So my narrative starts with the discovery of that grave. James, thank you for coming back to The Good Life. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.